The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The Gospel of the Lord. As we remember the disciples who have gone before us, help us to know our own discipleship, that we may live authentically in you, our creator, our redeemer, our sanctifier. Amen. So Jesus goes to his friend's house for dinner. His friends are three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who live in the town of Bethany and show up a few times in the Gospels. In this story, Martha is serving the meal, as usual. Lazarus is hosting, perhaps in gratitude for the gift of resurrection, as the last time we saw him, he was wrapped in strips of funeral cloth, coming forth from the tomb. Mary is, as usual, worshiping her Jesus, breaking the rules, and offending the other guests. This time, her act of praise is really radical. She pours a pound of perfume on Jesus' feet, an amount of perfume that would have cost about a year's wages. And then she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair, hair that probably should have been covered. Judas is there, too, and he is the one to voice everyone's shock at Mary's offensive act of worship. Aren't we supposed to be helping the poor? How could she waste all that valuable perfume when we could have used it in our ministry to the poor? Even the gospel writer has an opinion with his parenthetical statements about Judas's real motives. Judas is a thief not a friend of the poor. And by the way, he's really just biding his time until he can turn Jesus over to be crucified. I wonder, as I read this story, about each person's perception of Jesus and of themselves in relation to him. I wonder about discipleship. Each of them has a different model of discipleship. And us today... As disciples, discipleship is to be a follower. In this context, a follower of Jesus. 
Lazarus followed by thanking Jesus. Martha followed by serving. Judas followed by making noise when he judged that another follower was breaking Jesus' rules. We never do that kind of thing in the church, do we? The gospel writer followed Jesus by reporting on the events, adding his own opinions so that we could see who he thought were the true disciples. Mary followed by pouring all she had at Jesus' feet, by being vulnerable to social scrutiny. This extreme approach could seem a bit absurd, and indeed it did to some who witnessed it. Another model for discipleship that we encountered today was Paul in his letter to the Philippians. He says if anyone could brag about being good, he could brag even more. Paul says he was perfect. Circumcised on the eighth day, a follower of every law, a Pharisee, a persecutor of Christians. And then his world was turned on its head by the reality of Christ. Suddenly nothing mattered except Christ. And nothing he accomplished was done without Christ. How absurd that this could happen to a devout persecutor of Christianity. How absurd that he could allow it to happen. This Thursday I went to a talk by Brother Curtis Lundquist from the Society of St. John the Evangelist. He spoke about silence, solitude, and deep listening. He spoke about what can happen to us when we quiet the noise in our lives, our inner noises. Curtis told us that in 1948, theologian Thomas Merton wrote, We live in a society whose whole policy is to excite every nerve in the human body and keep it at its highest pitch of artificial tension, to create as many synthetic passions as possible. This was in 1948. Before we had internet, on-demand entertainment, cell phones, iPhones, Facebook, Twitter, 758 TV channels, Disneyland, PlayStation. It was before MP3s, CDs, cassettes, eight-track players, vinyl, 445s. It was before FM radio. Even then, it was noted that we have too much noise and distraction in our lives. Too many artificial experience to distract us from real life. Real life is hard to face head on. Yet, when we look at what is real, our inner dialogues with ourselves, the suffering in us and the world, the expansiveness of love by which we were created, our individual unique desires and passions, we start to get a sense of who we really are. If we start to get to know ourselves better, I wonder if we can start to love ourselves better. I know that the more I get to know my children, the more I love them and want the best for them. I do not want them to feel shame. I do not want them to feel oppressed 
or suppressed or depressed. I want them to have the space and freedom to be the fully alive, beloved ones who they are. I wonder what if we each wanted that, not just for our children, but for ourselves as well. I think we want to have it in order to get it, don't we? And once we really want it, then we must make setting time aside to get to know ourselves a priority. If I can carve out time to go online each week to watch Glee, I cannot live into the lie that there is no time to spend with myself with no distractions. We can actually spend 10 minutes a day or 45 minutes a week or a minute each morning checking in with ourselves in that inner space where God also resides in here. If we aren't spending time with ourselves, how can we really know ourselves? The people in this world who I know really well are people who I've spent a lot of quality time with. And here is where we come back to discipleship. If we don't really know ourselves, how can we know what kind of a disciple we are? Which brings us back to Mary and Paul. I think they must have really known themselves. Besides the fact that they had far fewer distractions than we have now, I think they must have taken the time to discern their callings, their passions, their relationship with an incarnate God, their discipleship. We may host a dinner out of gratitude as Lazarus did, serve others out of duty as Martha did, or write about what we think God is up to, as the gospel writer did. We may even criticize other people's piety, as Judas did. But we don't tend to give ourselves over to totally countercultural acts of devotion, as Mary and Paul both did. We don't tend to give ourselves over to totally countercultural acts of devotion. We do so only when we know that any other path would be inauthentic to who we are as disciples in Christ. Discipleship doesn't look the same for everyone. It is acted out in as many different ways as there are disciples, which is why we can't just look at other followers of Christ and copy them. We must look at the disciple within to know how to follow Jesus authentically. When we know who we are in Christ, when we love who we were created to be, when we discern what our discipleship will look like, it just might make complete sense to pour all we have at the feet of Christ and to wrap those feet in our own being, to soak him up and take him in. It may just make complete sense to allow Christ to turn our world upside down and put all our trust in him. Maybe it's not absurd at all. Brother Curtis shared with us a poem that I think is a beautiful guide in discovering our own way of following Christ. Not forcing it or trying to fit it in 
in between anxious assumptions of what we should be doing or self-shaming in the face of the perception that we aren't doing enough of this or that. But making space to listen, to wait, being open to the quiet formation of our own personal form of discipleship. I will read the poem to you, and then I will give you some time to be quiet. Today's minute of silence can be now. It will be your job to find tomorrow's minute. Here is the poem. It is called Clearing, and it's by Martha Postlethwaite. Do not try to save the whole world or do anything grandiose. Instead, create a clearing in the dense forest of your life and wait there patiently until the song that is your life falls into your own cupped hands and you recognize it and greet it. Only then will you know how to give yourself to this world so worth of rescue. Only then will you know how to give yourself to Christ so worth of your discipleship. Amen.